and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. I'm joined today by Opal co-founder Kara Bazzi, who's also the head of the exercise and sport program. And we are really excited to be sitting down and talking with Allison Desir. Allison is a runner, an activist, and a mental health coach. She is the founder of Harlem Run, Run for All Women, and the Global Woman Run Collective. Hi, Allison. Hi. So glad you joined us today. I'm excited to talk with you all. Yeah. So I, I really would love to hear a little bit about your story with running to begin with, if you feel open to sharing a little bit about how you got into running. Yeah. So I've always been really active growing up. I was in like soccer. I was in track. I was in any and every kind of sport and activity you can think of, which earned me the nickname Powdered Feet. My father <laughs> gave me that nickname. It describes somebody who's so active, you never see them, just the footprints of where they've been in powder. <laughs> So, um, yeah, always like just doing a million things, always the first to volunteer if we went to events and they needed somebody in the audience, I was like the one raising my hand. So throughout high school, I was active and then I went to college and I I went to Columbia University undergrad, did not really run there. I tried out for the team, but I realized that I didn't want to commit the amount of time and energy that it requires to play college sports. So I found myself back to running now eight years ago when I was very depressed, I didn't have a job at the time. My father had Lewy body dementia and was unable to feed himself. He was in diapers, just very far gone in his diagnosis. And I spent all of my time at home just scrolling on social media. So I just so happened to see that a friend of mine was training for a marathon and he was this like black guy who's, you know, I did not anticipate would be doing something like that. In my mind, marathon runners were just skinny white people. But he was just like average size black guy who was running a marathon or training for a marathon with team and training. And so I kept following his progress as he was sharing you know, the way runners do, we, we act like everybody's so invested in our, <laughs> in our but I actually was in this yeah. case. And, you know, he was raising money, he was meeting people, he was talking about how amazing the experience was. And I just decided, I watched him complete his marathon. And in January of the following year, I decided that, you know, this year is going to go by whether I do something or not. And I just, I decided that I would sign up as well, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. But that decision has paved the way for everything that I am and have today. Wow. What was the journey like once you started? So before, I should say before becoming depressed and, you know, I still, I still struggle with depression and I'm, you know, I'm on um, antidepressants and it, it comes and goes, but I was super high achieving. I was like loved following a schedule. I was in high school. I was in every kind of activity. I was Um, always at the top of my class. So I was like that person. (laughs) So (laughs) returning to marathon training and having a structure and a plan. And, you know, if you do X, you get Y. It was refreshing to me because that's how I had once been. So it sort of felt like it was a homecoming. And then as I moved through that first marathon training period, and then, you know, began to run more regularly, I realized that not everything had to be as strict, right? Like you, you can have the plan and then you can sort of play around with it and you know, you don't have to train for races. So the structure and the discipline was what I really needed at that time, but it's since allowed me to, you know, make space within that. And then you entered into the mental health field. Yeah. And if I'm slightly distracted, it's because my son's in the back saying, wow, wow, wow. (laughs) That is very sweet. Only word he knows. 
<laughs> um, so yeah, so as I was training for that first marathon, I started feeling better, right? I, and it wasn't like a magic pill, but it was like, the more I was sticking to this plan, somehow the more energy I had, even though I was doing, you know, really difficult things. And I was starting to wonder, well, if I can apply myself in this way, and if I can tackle something really big, break it up into smaller pieces, what else could I do? So I just started Googling, like, does marathon training help with feeling badly? <laughs> like, are there other people who feel this way? You know, eight years ago, it wasn't that long ago, but people weren't on social media to the extent that they are now. And there's definitely been another running boom. So, but people weren't everywhere talking about health and fitness and wellness to the extent that they are now. So I was just uncovering that there were people having these conversations, that there was some anecdotal evidence at the time, there wasn't research, but that, you know, there's a connection between running and movement and helping with anxiety and, you know, the endorphins and endocannabinoids and all of that. So I was starting to find all this information and I was like, oh, wow, there's, there's a field called counseling and there's, I could actually find a way to couple what I'm just experiencing through the run with actual training. So I believe it was, I can't even remember time has like evaporated, but sometime after completing my first marathon, I decided to apply for graduate school at Teachers College, uh, Columbia University. And I chose that program because it had a multicultural framework and it was not just the like psychopathology type of framework, right? Where like something's wrong with you needs to be fixed. But something may in fact, you know, there might be some chemistry there, there might be something going on, but also what are the ways in which your experience in the world impacts you? So how does racism, sexism, all of that stuff, how does that impact your mental health? So that to me really registered and yeah, went back to school. Uh, where has the journey of mental health taken you and getting trained and what kind of have you done since going to graduate school and are you using that degree and in what capacity? So I am, but in, in a way that I didn't imagine. So because I wanted to be a therapist, but also I realize now in retrospect, it was part of my own healing. Like I also was going to therapy and I found that to be useful to an extent, but I now realize that my therapist was a psychoanalyst and I was like sitting there like, Hey, can you like can you emote? Like, should we be in conversation? And it was just like that very stoic. So I had the wrong kind of therapist. I now understand, but so there was some like quote unquote breakthroughs happening. But I really found that through the counseling program, there was a lot of journaling and there was a lot of understanding your own bias and your own social location and all of your identities. And that was really impactful for me. And it was the first time that I was able to confront things like, wow, like I really have a lot of class bias or wow, I really, you know, my parents being immigrants and coming to this country, uh, that really has had a deep impact on the way that I see myself. So I was really reflecting on things that I never had before. So I finished the program, the, the coursework, but I didn't finish the internship because at that same time, things started to get really busy with Harlem Run and Run for All Women. And I felt like I didn't have the time to do it. So I took like two or three years off from school but thankfully, this woman, Dr. Sandal, I want to give her a shout out. She was actually on my Meaning Through Movement tour, and now she's a friend of mine. She's a, she's a woman of color. She's Southeast Asian. And she was like, listen, there are not a lot of Black women. There are not a lot of people of color in this space. You need to come back, finish your internship so that you at least have your degree. So I did that sometime later. I can't remember <laughs> anything. <laughs> sometime later, I went back. And then I started doing my licensure hours at around the same time that I got pregnant. So I never got licensed, but I also realized like through this process, as more and more things were happening 
outside of my counseling self, I realized that what I'm really invested in is more community interventions. And while I really, really enjoyed speaking with my clients one-on-one, it sort of felt not true to who I am. And I felt like if I could bring all of my schooling and then my experience with running and my activism, if I could bring all of that together in a public space, then I, you know, I'm doing counseling. I'm just not doing it in the traditional sense. So counseling, that perspective, the you know, a feminist uh, perspective is really a part of everything that I do. And, or the feminist theoretical perspective. I am also a feminist, not, and I, I'm qualifying because when people think of feminists, they think of just white women. For those who can't see me, I am a black woman. But so all of that very much informs who I am and what I think about and the ways that I make myself vulnerable. That's awesome. I mean, you really have pulled together all of those passions and you're doing incredible things. Not to cut you off, but I remember in my program, I took the MBM, what is it? The Myers-Briggs? Yeah. yeah. And I can't even remember like what the indicators are, but the result of it was like, you're like, you have, there was a creative piece of me. And I remember my, my professor saying, you know, you're going to be a person that creates something new. You're going to like that creative piece is going to come in. And, and I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Like, I don't believe in these tests because (laughs) the norm group was a bunch of white men. So like, how could that test (laughs) determine who I am? But somehow like the idea of bringing seemingly disparate pieces together. I think that that has been like the, the creative artistic part of me. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Using all these different gifts and your lived experience to, to do good in the world. It's awesome. Thank you. I would love to hear you talk a little bit about like what these things are that you've created. Like we've listed a couple of them, but for, for our listeners that don't know much, I'd love to hear like sort of what you're passionate about and what you are doing in the running world. Yeah. So Harlem Run, I started just um, I ran my first marathon in June of 2012 and I started Harlem Run in November of 2013. And my goal was really simple. I was just like, you know, I, there were not a lot of black people in my training plant program. There were not a lot of black people at the marathon. I'm going to start a program in Harlem. You know, there must be other people who could benefit from this experience. So that was it. It was like really just find other people to run within the neighborhood and share this experience. It took like four or five months for the first person to show up. So I was showing up every Monday and posting on social media and trying to bribe my friends to come. (laughs) But it it took a long time for even like the first person to consistently come. And then from there, it was probably about a year until there was like 150 of us meeting together. And we were bringing people together of all ages, you know, lots of different backgrounds, people who were walkers, runners, run walkers. And so it was this really, it was this community of runners, but running was just the piece that brought us together, right? Throughout, people were meeting their friends, people were taking chances, trying new jobs, all the things that happen when you get into a movement practice. And so Harlem Run has since grown to be a group that does a lot of community work, a lot of fundraising, organizing around, you know, big events. And out of Harlem Run came Run for All Women. Um, After the 2016 election, I I wanted to... um, I wanted to get to the Women's March and, and do something because I felt like I hadn't done enough uh, around, you know, Trump. You know, Trump ended up getting elected and I felt like I hadn't done enough. But I knew that if I organized my community and, and use my platform, I felt like I could make a big impact. So Run for All Women was really, it was just a run from, not just, but it started off as a run from Harlem to Washington, D.C. 
And of course, we can you know now say what we want about the women's march and and their lack of intersectionalism, but it really was a, a moment. And after we did that run, it was 250 miles, and we raised over 150 thousand dollars for Planned Parenthood. People were like, "Okay, what's next?" And I was like. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> but we decided, myself and then um, the two women who I organized it with now, we were like, okay, there's an opportunity to create an ambassador program. Like, let's just share what we know and what we did. And, and a lot of people were really excited about the idea as running for social change. So that's really the root of Run for All Women. It's about using movement. Uh, running for activism. And we are in the midst of a campaign right now, Women Run the Vote. We have raised over $200,000 for Black Voters Matter, which is an organization that works to empower people to get out to vote, particularly Black people and other marginalized folks. But this is a 680 digital virtual relay event, and teams are completing the miles and raising funds. So we've definitely done a lot in the past few years. One thing I just want to say about the what I love about that event is the inclusivity of the different forms of movement. Yeah, I just that to me really stood out of being aware of just the inclusivity aspect of it and not just biasing it towards the running is the movement. So I I was really appreciative of that. The platform that we're using is Racery, and I'm not trying to like give a plug for them, but but it is really incredible the way that they've you know they've created an algorithm where you put in your mileage or. But you can also put in activities from like gardening to yeah. obviously walking, but to there was, I think there was cleaning. We might've removed it as one of the options because we're like cleaning is, is, yeah, sure <laughs> is it like vacuuming? Is it scrubbing? Yeah. Um, but then there's an algorithm that converts it. And, and we really wanted to be mindful of that because Women Run the Vote is sort of a refresh of the 1977 Torch Relay. Um, the Torch Relay, which I don't think a lot of people know about. I wasn't familiar with it. But um, it was an event. Billie Jean King attended it. It was the whole purpose of the event was women using their their body as a form of political address. But th- that relay event was not as inclusive. It was a product of its time. So we wanted to make sure, okay, with this like reboot of it, how can we center the the voices, the experiences of marginalized folks, and how can we make sure that as many people who are interested in participating can participate. And then where does Wazelle fit in? Because we know that you yeah. signed Wazelle, which is Seattle-based company yes. that we yes. are familiar with. Yes. So we were excited to see that change and Sally yeah. and you forming a relationship. So yeah, I love Yeah, that. yeah. So I have to say Sally pursued me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And for um, those that don't know who is Sally. Oh yeah. Okay. So Sally Burgesson, who is the CEO and founder of Wazelle. Wazelle is a women's brand uh, for women, by women. Uh, although we've been talking, by we, I'm also, I'm an advisor for Wazelle. So we've been talking about what is the language around women and how can, is there a way that even that tagline can be incorporate a broader group of folks? Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, I, so I ended my partnership with Under Armour in December of this past year. And I knew that it was an opportunity for me to work with brands that were being more daring and having conversations that I was having, I, I wanted to be part of a brand that was that was also doing the same thing. So first brand was Hoka. Uh, I partnered with Hoka in January, and it's been really exciting because they've sponsored the Meaning Through Movement Tour, which is a series of conversations and uh, yoga, fitness events. The last one's coming up in a month. And then Sally, seeing that there was an opportunity, she was like, I see you're not with Under Armour. <laughs> like, is there an opportunity for us to work together? Um, but it, it actually didn't even start that way. It started with her coming to an event that I hosted and then us seeing each other at different events. And 
her, she sent me some gear to try out. And, and this, that was really important to me because I was, I think like seven months postpartum and I was in a place where nothing was fitting and that was contributing to how I was feeling about myself, which all of you know well. And this illusion that I would go back to how I was previously, it just was so potent. And it still is, it's still really hard for me, right? Because I look at photos of myself, or I look at what I was able to accomplish. And I feel like this world has not prepared me to know that you change, right? Like none of us are, even with old age, right? Like none of us have any kind of ability. Like we were just so not ready for what will happen. Anyway, so she gave me the clothes and I was like, the product's awesome. Um, I had heard about Sally before and the stands that she was making against Nike and, and the ways in which she was really putting herself out there in a way that brands don't. So officially I, I signed with Wazell in June and it's, it's been really cool. The next step is she's trying to get me to move to Seattle. I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> I, I have to admit, when I knew you were out here, I was like, can I go on a run with her? <laughs> I mean, the weather, I know that now there's like a, a smoke issue and, you know, like my heart goes out to, to all of you, everybody there. It's, it's just, it's, it's crazy. But the weather was beautiful and uh, it wasn't raining. It was like a perfect 65, 70 degrees. And I was like, I could yeah. do this. Thing. Very seductive. Yeah, it's really <laughs> yeah. nice this month. <laughs> Seattle summer is pretty, you can't really beat Seattle summer. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. You have talked a couple times already today about like how unusual it is to see Black people in the running community. I, I really want to hear you talk about a little bit around why you think that is. I know the running, jogging initially became something that was kind of uh, meant to be attractive to upper middle class white people. But I, yeah, I really want to hear kind of what what it's been like as a black woman to participate in a world that doesn't have a lot of representation and why you think that is. Yeah. So I, I do have to say that I think in the last eight years, there's been, I've realized that there are a lot of Black people who are running. There are a lot of Black people in the outdoors. It's more like you mentioned that representation piece. Uh, and then, of course, there are obstacles that make it difficult for us to exist when we're doing these things. But yeah, so a big part of this is, is representation and uh, who you're seeing in magazines, on, on magazine covers, who you're seeing featured on social media, who you're seeing, you know, what kinds of the ways in which the ads, you know, all of the stuff that goes into, what is it, like the psychometrics that or like whoever the the companies determine their demographic is in many ways those products are not being presented to to us to people of color but then when we are in, this spa- in these spaces we find that our safety is compromised or um we find that you know we just encounter racism you know obviously Ahmaud Arbery happened um the, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery and I've been tracking since then which maybe is like a little strange but I've been tracking then all of the news articles around people being arrested while jogging, people being, you know, not even the murders that have been happening, but things specific to jogging. Um, And I think it's really interesting because now the media has sort of realized that I guess that that's a niche that people are interested in. But finally, I feel like there's an uncovering of what we as black and brown people know that, you know, this society has really been built around whiteness and, you know, laws around who can, has freedom to move, who can stay out after dark, who can have access to certain neighborhoods, all of that has limited the ways in which Black people can participate in outside life. And I mean that just even like going outside in, you know, in New York City. So 
I feel like in in running and in the outdoor community, uh, these conversations are just starting to happen around like, oh, if we're living in a in a country that's you know, rooted in white supremacy, of course that's going to filter into every single thing that exists within that society. Uh, and running is no different. Would you add anything too about representation when it comes to size and shape? I know um, Myrna Valario is somebody who's is bringing both of those um, identities into the conversation, and I'd love to hear. I don't know. I've I've heard a little bit of you commenting about that, but I I'm curious if you'd have more to say about that too. Yeah, totally. I mean, I realize um, like I, I I have a lot of privileges, and I also have a lot of you know marginalized identities, but. One of my privileges was, still is, I mean, I'm, not, I'm by no means am I a, a large woman, but I'm larger than I once was. And before I was stereotypically what a runner looked like in terms of body size, right? And I now realize, and I actually, after um, getting pregnant and a few months postpartum, I was like, wow, nobody's even going to care about what I have to say anymore because I don't, quote unquote, look like a runner, right? So even the things that if my friend said to me, like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fat, right? Like, I'm not a runner. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Of course you're a runner. But it's very different from the internal dialogue that we have with ourselves. And so I'm now, you know, faced with coming to terms with the fact that I have these internalized ideas about what is pretty and what's beautiful. A lot of that comes from ideas of, like, whiteness and, and then thinness. So, I, you know, at the, at the end of the day, none of us is safe from, from these systems. It's, like, about every day committing to be anti-racist, every day questioning what your privilege is, every day fighting against these internalized scripts that we've been given since the day we were born, right? Do you feel like the running community has shifted their perspective in a helpful way or, or started doing some things that you feel like are helpful since Ahmaud Aubrey's murder. And I know that you wrote an article about this for Outside Magazine too. So yeah, yeah. I imagine gonna, there's some impact. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I will say that I think that the conversation is happening in a way that has never happened before. Um, well, has never happened by white people before, right? These are conversations that uh, me and my friends have often had. I mean, the whole reason for starting Harlem Run was about representation. But I also want to add to that, and I want to steal a line from Alicia Montano, is that it really is too soon to tell, right? Like just this past month, in response to myself and a lot of other voices, we saw Runner's World, the US magazine, Runner's World UK, a triathlon magazine, an ultramarathon magazine, a bicycling magazine, uh, outside, all of those had covers with Black people, right? And so it's like that one year that the Academy decided to give Black people an Academy Award, right? And we were like, okay, <laughs> like, yes, we're asking for this, but you don't just give it to us for one year and then we, you know, then that's it. So it remains to be seen whether this is a true long lasting commitment. And I think race is particularly problematic in this country because of the history. And so I think it's, it's important that we push for people to stick on race, right? I also know that and believe that intersectionalism is important, but what often happens is, and, and by no means do I mean this, in, and you know, we're, obviously we're talking, you have a, a clinic that's all about like body image and size, but, but what will happen is people will say like, oh, but there also haven't been fat people on the cover or, but there also haven't been trans people on the cover. And those issues are, those are just as important identities, right? But what often happens is we move the conversation away from race because race is particularly difficult to talk about. And I don't, like, none of these identities should be competing with each other. And I'm not saying, oh, you know, trans people wait for later. I just, 
I think that companies have to reconcile with each of these things. And I'll give one more example of that. There's a brand that I've been talking to and they've said, well, we've done a lot of work as it relates to like the LGBTQ community because somehow that felt like easier, right? And I'm not going to comment on whether that's easy or not, but they admitted for them, it seemed like less of a risk than to talk about race. And it's because I think this country has never really had, you know, had any kinds of conversations about the lasting impact of, of slavery and, you know, Jim Crow. So I don't know, somebody's probably going to curse me out on Instagram because of what I said and misinterpret what I just said. <laughs> but... I, I feel like that is hard to argue with. I mean, I'm sure there's someone will argue with it, but right, yeah. of course, like there's yeah. something that is incredibly activating for white people around talking about race and mm-hmm. we can dip our toe into talking about other marginalized experiences and mm-hmm. as if they're all special topics that we'll right. visit once. But- well, white women will like hijack the conversation and be like, oh, but I'm a woman and patriarchy. And it's like, okay, well, I am also a woman. And I am also a black woman, right? right? And if I was disabled black woman living in poverty, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, so, and I think I was talking to Robin D'Angelo when she said this, that when you, it's important to focus on race because all those additional identities are on top of the issue of race, right? And race makes it particularly difficult because the life of a white disabled woman obviously is not easy, but the whiteness is so so powerful in that in that case. Yeah, salient. Yeah, I have an 11 and a 13 year old and, and I've done some kids workshops and I'm thinking about the, the opportunities I've gotten to talk in front of coaches and just kind of going into that preventative space of what, what do people need to learn? What do people need to know? How do we raise, how do we create sustainable change and keep the conversation about race at the forefront? And I, I don't know, I guess I feel curious if there's things that you have have been thinking about on that kind of preventative aspect with with kids and with youth or coaches or the influencers of of how these kids are being raised to to see race and to um especially for the white kids and the white running community these these running programs of all these youth right yeah i guess i just feel curious what your thoughts are with that first of all for many people they think that for many white people they think that talk like even saying that somebody's black is a bad thing, right? Like I am not upset about being black. Like I'm so happy that I'm black, right? My blackness is about the problem. White supremacy is the problem, right? So people have adopted this, you know, colorblindness and this, this, um, this sense that we should pretend as though the thing that's like smack in our face, we don't see. And this has, this is true of like folks who are disabled, of folks who, whose whose gender is is not they're not performing gender the way that we stereotypically see right and i think about uh i forget where i heard this but um probably in like a mom group <laughs> but the, somebody wrote how you know their kids saw this person who they were gender nonconforming and the kid was like oh my god what is that and the mom was relaying how you know her initial reaction was to be like Shh, don't say anything right but like that's just silly right like why not if the person is willing to engage in the conversation is a whole different thing. And I don't expect that a marginalized person would have to do the work to share, but couldn't this be an opportunity to say like, you know, there's, there's more than there's all different kinds of ways that you can showcase your gender. Like, I don't know. I'd have to think about the language. Right. But like, and it's not up to us to determine who that person is. And this is how the person lives their life. Right. Like, I would I would work on that language and I'm thinking about it with Corey, but if somebody if Corey was like, Oh my God, look at that white woman, like 
he's not saying anything bad. He's saying a fact. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's observing the world. Exactly. Right. So I think we really do children a disservice. We gaslight them, right? When they're like, oh my God, but I'm seeing these differences. And now I'm supposed to pretend these differences aren't happening. And that that is what breeds this um, this continued ignorance. So I think it's, it's just really important for, for coaches, for people particularly who are around kids. You have to work on your own endurance and resilience to have these conversations because you're really screwing up a whole generation of people by playing pretend. I know that in Kara's work at Opal, she has done a lot around kind of uh, helping the athletes that come for treatment understand the different factors that have contributed to their eating disorder, to their disordered relationship with exercise, to their body, et cetera. And that oftentimes as we dismantle those things, they are characteristics of white supremacy. Mm. I know that Opal's been doing a lot of hard work to, to figure out that that's what it is and name that and help clients begin to understand that. Mm-hmm. Do you imagine a version of sort of athletics or the running community without white supremacy? Mm. And what could that look like? Like what would the conversation be about identity, about running, about sort of what it means to get to be in your body in this particular way mm-hmm. if these systems were removed? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to imagine because I've never experienced it, right? Yeah. And even when I'm with just black and brown folks and even if I'm like a, abroad or in another country, like white supremacy is is present and has basically Everybody. always been present for like as long as, you know, my my memory. But I mean, I imagine that looks like just being able to embrace and talk about difference and, you know, the little things that I, like, I, I just watched this and I'm trying to, I have it here on my desktop. It was uh, this workshop healing from white supremacy. And it, it asks you to, you know, journal and reflect on the ways in which white supremacy shows up in you. And it's not just in ways like uh, beauty standards. It's also in things like only appreciating uh, quantitative material versus qualitative, right? So we know that a lot of, um, in a lot of cultures, including, you know, the cultures of my family, spoken word is so important and, and a lot of history and information is passed down through elders and it may not end up written, right? But white supremacy is like, oh, if it's not, if it's not written down, it's not true. If we can't measure it, then it's not valuable, right? And so we're all like beholden to this, like, especially in the nonprofit world, like, how do we prove this is working? Like, we need to show that this has increased by this. Like, why not? Like, well, people are feeling better, right? Like, <laughs> I feel good right now. Other people are saying they're feeling good right now, right? But we have been conditioned to think that that's not valuable. Or, you know, it's all about like, can you get stronger, faster? And, and like, I mean, I love the Olympics, right? But like, it's this continuous search for, for better and better is something that you're not already. So I don't know, I can only, I, I guess I can, I can imagine what that would be like without white supremacy only when I first say, this is what white supremacy would would act like in this situation. And so I could imagine, oh, it would be nice if we would value people's stories. And when they told us how they felt and we didn't see that as a weakness or we didn't seek more quote unquote proof. One of the, I'd, I'd be curious what you think of this. One of the conversations we have quite a bit um, at Opal when it comes to sport 
is the role of yeah achievement, what counts, what matters. Mm-hmm. You can only do it if you're good at it. Perfect, mm-hmm. like all of the steeps, you know, all of the the connection to perfectionism, mm-hmm. uh, and then seeing that rooted in white supremacy, right? Of that perfectionistic mindset that it's only valuable if you're good and you have to achieve and get better and better and better. And that there's, um, you know, which really removes the element of joy, which joy is often the fuel for sustained movement and pleasure. Yeah. And and it's not, it's not to say that like, you know, like I also, I love reading. I love knowledge. So it's not that the accumulation of knowledge is, is, white supremacy it's that like there's never enough and you always have to be the the quote-unquote best on it like you're always measuring against something you know um i think about that a lot when i when i was thinking about like if i would go back and get my license and of course that in of itself is like you know counseling i I really like the profession even though a lot of counseling is rooted in like these norms that are (laughs) have nothing to do with people of color but but this idea that like you got to finish what you started, right? <laughs> if you don't do it in this way, then you haven't done it. And I'm like, but I mean, I'm glad that they're like medical boards because I don't want just anybody practicing medicine, right? But like, who says when you're like a doctor, like my grandmother on my father's side was like a plant doctor, right? And she did a lot of stuff in the countryside in Haiti and like she healed a lot of people. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you did counseling for a little while and dropped out, you still have that little while of experience that then impacts the way that you show up in the world and causes a lot of good. Yeah. Whether or not you have that degree or not. Yeah. You know, I think that the true test of all of this, of course, is going to be with my son. If I have any other children, because we can talk a lot of shit. (laughs) And then it comes to your child and you're like, you will go to college. You you will get a job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the rubber hits the road at that point. (laughs) Yeah, I feel curious to the mental health, more on the mental health piece too, of just kind of, as we've been also kind of unpacking what, what, what is being informed by kind of white supremacy or white, like um, even theoretical models that are founded by white male psychologists, kind of how are we shaped by that and how can we be continuing to be um, mindful of how those things get interwoven in a way that's not helpful and harmful for a lot of folks. So, well, yeah, I think, I think a lot about, and I don't, again, I don't know the answer, but I think about this idea of like the idea of objectivity. And I think about the idea of like transference and, you know, the idea that, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to disclose a lot of information. And then, Mm -hmm. and I, then I think about the ways in which, okay, for example, being here in the United States, and then I lived in Korea for a little while, and then I've like traveled in the Caribbean and, and the different ways of engaging and interacting, right? So like in the United States, I think, um, well, I can be more specific than that. Like with, with white people, when I engage with white people, there's often more of like a, a, a distance, right? Versus with like black people in the United States or, or Caribbean people in the United States, there's a lot more loving embrace. Uh, mm-hmm. In Korea, there, it's like very hierarchical, a lot of ritual, a lot of tradition in Haiti and, and another place in the Caribbean. Again, like similar to the United States, when I meet somebody of that background, there's there's just more of an embrace and a lot of disclosure. And that's just in general conversations, right? So I'm making this generalization. So then you think about all these different types of people coming into the counseling room. And we have this one way of being where we have to be objective and we don't accept gifts and we don't um, you know, all those things when in, in, in certain cultures, like you give a gift as a show of like reverence, right. Or you, 
you like hugging and showing emotion is important or on the other side, like not showing emotion. It's just, you know, how could these, these ideas that these white men created really account for the wide spectrum of ways of being and culture. Now I do understand that if I'm really enmeshed with the person and if I like, you know, love them (laughs) in a romantic way, it's obviously really difficult for me to have perspective, but there is no objectivity. And if we could allow for a multicultural approach where, okay, this person, like they give gifts because that's just their way of, of showing appreciation then accept it as a gift and not a bribe, right? Like, let's remove that sense of understanding because that's what we're putting on it. Yeah, I mean, those things shouldn't be pathologized. Exactly. They should that's be it. embraced. Exactly. For sure. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, not without re- reflection, right? Because then you also have to think about, okay, what does this mean for me? Like, do I like seeing this client more? Am I eager to, to schedule uh, future appointments because they're giving me gifts? Well, like, okay, then there's probably something right. problematic there, right? But um, this idea that there's just one way of doing this, and then of course, like, the, all of the ethics that have been built around this one understanding do make it difficult. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I've never, um, I've never encountered or like heard about a, I don't know if you call it a clinic, but like the kind of, the kind of work that you do, because as I think about my own body and my own images and, uh, and my own ideas about myself now, and I don't want to things, I don't want to pathologize how I'm thinking because I think that, a lot of it is is normal for this postpartum period, but I also recognize that your clinic is helpful, even if it's not like deep pathology, right? Like I think these are things that should be talked about all of the time. And and as I mentioned before, I really it's really frustrating the ways in which we don't prepare people for changes in their body, prepare people for yeah. aging, prepare people for yeah, all the things that happen. Puberty, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at my mother, and my mother is like. She's always talking about like, I got to cut this thing here and do this. And I'm like, my mom's like 70 something, right? I'm like, you're not going to go under the knife. And guess what? Shit is supposed to be like that. (laughs) Like me, that'd be super freaky, you know? (laughs) But yeah, I guess like normalizing the fact that there are resources for people who have these ideas that like so many of us are, are struggling with this stuff just as a byproduct of living in this world, you know? And And it's almost normalized to hate your body. Exactly. And exactly. so, yeah, I was just running. So I was just running my, both my girls do cross country and I was running with um, a couple nine to 10, like pre puberty girls. And then some girls that are right in the midst of puberty and their bodies are changing. And I'm just like, Oh my God. I like, yes. It's just, I I'm so happy to be a part of that space a little bit because of just being a voice to be like, yep, your body's going to change and just be patient with it. And mm-hmm there's so many stories of girls getting scared off by the, what their body's going to do when they hit puberty as runners that are really into running. Yeah. I just have, have so much passion about how we engage kids during that time about having a voice that normalizes it, celebrates it, holds patience for it. Yeah. Like just does, and, and doesn't just fall into the thin ideal is like the way to be and looking at all these different bodies and enjoying different bodies. And I don't know, I just, and the other piece, and I think about this and then I get like, just like trapped in this cycle of like, what is life? (laughs) But thinking about the ways in which a lot of my pride about my body comes from what it can do. Right. And so like all the ableism of like, Oh, well I may have gained this weight, but at least I can still do this. Right. And so like, you're constantly like negotiating around these really terrible systems and ideas, you know? 
It's also tricky too, because like in order to combat some of the thin white ideal, we want to have more and more representation. And yet there's still this thin line between that and objectification. Sometimes once you get people's bodies just out there, like, okay, let's get someone that's this size and this color. And like you then wind up also relating maybe to kind of the body still as an object rather than getting to have the embodied experience of like, ooh, what is it like to go through puberty? Oh, it feels uncomfortable or it feels this, or it feels like I'm curious now about myself in this new way. And then having that more internal attuned relationship with your body that really is outside of all of those systems once it's coming from the inside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that nuance is lacking from everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Allison, it's been so wonderful getting to talk with you. I know that we all want to just keep talking, but I want to I want to make sure that our listeners have a sense of what you're up to in the community right now, how they can be a part of the different um, fundraising and the different things and initiatives you're doing around voting, etc. So tell us, please. Sure. So if you want to find me, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, my website. Allison M. Desir, right? So it's allisonmdesir.com, Allison M. Desir at all these other places. The initiative Women Run the Vote, you can find that information uh, most easily on the Wazelle website. Uh, the, the, the URL is not the easiest to, to say, but all that information is on the Wazelle website and you can donate or you can participate, you can do both. I imagine that we're going to end up raising a quarter of a million dollars for Black Voters Matter, which is really exciting. And then the other piece, I'm finishing the Meeting Through Movement Tour. So the last stop is on September 26th. And that will be a conversation about uh, with a sports psychologist about unlocking your potential. It should be an interesting conversation because we, a lot of people talk about potential and it's like, what is what does that even mean, right? And then I hope that October, November, December, I get to sleep, but <laughs> the way my life works, there'll be something else. But uh, yeah, that's it for now. <laughs> oh, I hope you get to sleep. <laughs> You're doing a lot. Thank you. Well, we will make sure to be linking all of those things in the description box for anyone that's listening that needs just a quick link to find um, and follow Allison. Thanks again, Allison, for joining us. It's been yeah. really fun. Yes, thank um, you so much. I hope it's funny. I, I do podcasts, and then I'm like, did anything I say make sense? So <laughs> when I re-listen to this, I'll uh, I'll be proud of myself. Once again, make sure to check the description box for ways to follow along with Allison um, and the amazing work that she's doing. If you want to follow along with Opal as well, make sure to join us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Opal Food and Body. If you want to learn more about our programming, visit opalfoodandbody.com. Thank you so much to Hans Anderson for editing, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetites original music, and Camille Dodson for all of her assistance and organization around the podcast. We hope you join us next time. Thank you. Bye.